1: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe for this Wednesday the 12th of April in London. Coming up today Differences of opinion Financial heavyweights at odds on the impact of the banking crisis Bracing for the dam to burst Goldman's flood says stocks will surge if US CPI comes in at or below consensus Promoting peace and prosperity Biden lands in Belfast to mark 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement
2: Former Morgan Stanley executive to advise Sunak millionaires call for a British wealth tax. An intel leak suggests UK special forces are in Ukraine. Those are the stories we're looking at in today's papers and I'm Leanne Gerrans. Plus, X
1: marks the spot. Elon Musk turns Twitter into X Corp. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. The business news you need to start your day in just one 15-minute podcast on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good morning, I'm Stephen Carroll. Here are the stories we're following today. The IMF says it's too soon to sound the all clear over the turmoil from the banking crisis, but some top policymakers disagree. US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the US economy is performing exceptionally well. She doesn't believe the recent banking issues have restricted the availability of credit.
0: I've not really seen evidence at this stage suggesting a contraction in credit Although that is a possibility, the US economy is obviously performing exceptionally well with continued solid uh, job creation, inflation gradually moving down, robust consumer spending.
1: Yellen spoke after data show that US lending contracted by the most on record in the last two weeks of March. Meanwhile, Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsbee says he believes a cautious approach is now needed to monetary policy. He says the U.S. central bank should assess just how much pressure on banks will contribute to tighter lending conditions.
3: Today, what I want us to think about is why I think that at moments of financial stress like this, the right monetary policy is really caution and watchfulness and prudence.
1: The Fed's newest policymaker also signalling that he may support holding rates during next month's policy meeting, but stopped short of explicitly endorsing the move. US regulators were investigating Credit Suisse eight months before its collapse. The bank delayed its annual report in March, blaming a late call from the Securities and Exchange Commission about accounting errors, but Bloomberg reporting has found that a probe has been ongoing since July of the previous year. It comes as the Swiss parliament symbolically voted against approving government guarantees for UBS's takeover of Credit Suisse in a show of political discontent with the deal. Goldman Sachs has published research with its expectations for the stock market reactions to today's US CPI report. The story from Bloomberg's Charlie Pellett. Partner John Flood says you can expect the S&P 500 to drop at least 2 percent should the year-over-year inflation rate come in above the previous reading of 6 percent. But he says stocks are likely to go higher if the CPI meets or trails 5.1 percent, which happens to be the consensus estimate from economists in a Bloomberg survey. The veteran trader wrote that the stock market, quote, wants a softer print as a hot reading will add more confusion and uncertainty into the equation of what the Fed does from here. In New York, Charlie Pellet, Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. Joe Biden has arrived in Northern Ireland in a visit to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday peace agreement. On leaving the United States, reporters asked the President what the goal of the trip was.
2: Make sure the Irish Accords and the Winter Agreement stay in place. Keep the peace.
1: Biden's four-day trip to the island of Ireland will include meeting UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak later today, as well as Irish Taoiseach Leo Varadkar later in the week, plus leaders of the main political parties at Stormont. And Twitter has ceased to be an independent company. The social media business has merged with a newly formed shell firm called X Corp. Elon Musk, meanwhile, has been speaking to the BBC on a Twitter space about six months since his takeover of the company. It was a characteristically quirky exchange where Musk says he hasn't got a successor in mind to replace him as CEO.
3: I'm not the CEO of Twitter. My dog is the CEO of Twitter. OK, have you got, <laughs> have you got any... It's a great dog. Other than the dog? He's very alert and it's hard to put, get anything by him. OK, that's good to know. Other yeah. than the dog, have you got any successors in mind? You've got a black, a total neck. What more do you mean? Uh, yeah. Steve Jobs <laughs> or Elizabeth Holmes? Are you making reference to uh, I guess more Elizabeth Holmes. OK.
1: That was Elon Musk speaking there to the BBC on a Twitter space uh, in the past hour or so. This has been a fascinating conversation. We'll keep you up to date on the details of it uh, later on as well. Another story though that's caught my eye uh, is to do with a very expensive pair of shoes. Uh, This is a pair of Michael Jordan's trainers from his famous Last Dance season selling for $2.2 million at a Sotheby's auction. They're the most expensive pair of sneakers ever to known have been to known to have been sold. The previous record was 1.8 million dollars uh, for a pair of Nike Air Yeezy shoes. Now Jordan wore this pair during game 2 of the 1998 NBA Finals. They had come to an auction already with a pretty high price. That expected to be record breakers too. The estimated price was for 2.2 to 4 Million dollars. Um, it carried what Sotheby's calls an irrevocable bid, which means that that's essentially they had a buyer lined up in advance uh, when they brought this to auction. So. It did come in at the lower end of that two to $4 million range when it comes to $2.2 million, especially when you include the auction house uh, fees for that as well. So although it's uh, certainly a very high price, uh, it's not perhaps evidence of a massively booming market. These are, of course, a very uh, unique pair of shoes. So fetching a massive uh, price tag there from Sotheby's as well. Let's get back to discussing some of those opinions on the effects of the banking turmoil on the global economy. The IMS latest comments say it's too soon to sound the all clear, and that the banking issues are likely to be a drag on global economic growth. Now, some policymakers don't agree. Janet Yellen, among them, uh, saying that she doesn't see any signs of restricted credit availability. We've seen a call for prudence from Austin Goolsbee of the Chicago Fed as well. Let's speak to Bloomberg Opinion columnist Daniel Moss for more on this story. Um, Daniel, let's, let's dig into a bit what the IMF has said about this. Are they right to be cautious on this front?
3: Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's anecdotal evidence coming in, uh, and you can see it in some Federal Reserve data. We are seeing the makings of a contraction in credit, as Ben Bernanke famously said. Credit is the lifeblood of the economy. Without it, there is no economy. Now, don't mean to get terribly dramatic here, but you know, clearly, it's having some impact. Uh, the question is how consequential is that impact and you know the thing that struck me listening to the IMF press conference yesterday was not so much the numerical changes to their projections, which were very slight. it was the overall difference in tone uh, they presented a much damper uh, more downbeat uh, face on things and what's been going on in the banking industry has been a contributor to that shift in tone. Now, the growth forecasts
1: were, were trimmed, as you mentioned, part of that downbeat tone you're talking about. But can you kind of put a scale on, on how much of a downgrade this is, and, and how gloomy the IMF is being about the, the upcoming months and years for the global economy?
3: Numerically, uh, the changes are insubstantial. Uh, down a tenth of a percentage point this year from 2.9, which is what they forecast in January, to 2.8, which is the prediction uh, they made Tuesday in DC. But look, beyond the numbers, it's the shift in tone that I find interesting. So as you know, I live in Singapore. When the IMF uh, upgraded, there's that word upgrade, don't hear it too often, it's forecasts, the economic team came to Singapore. Uh, for that um, unveiling. And the talk was very much about turning points. You know, the chief economist was quite upbeat. He gave a lecture uh, at a prominent university here the next day, and I turned up and I asked him a question after the lecture. I said, what is it about turning points that makes them so tricky and why the equivocation? He said, well, you know, things have been moving in one direction very much for the past 18 months. And then you start to see some of these things moving in a little bit of a different way. He was talking principally about uh, China's reopening. Then, you know, you can start to say the ingredients are there at long last for a shift. You know, there was really none of that body language uh, or mood music yesterday from what I could see. And in fact, listening uh, to the audio of the press conference just before I joined you, um, I noticed that no member of the audience challenged the chief economist on the talking point line uh, from just a few months ago. A turning point, excuse me, not talk slipped there. I mean, perhaps both, in fact, is
1: what it was, a turning point yeah. and a talking point. But, I mean, I'm curious, we, we pay always a lot of attention to, to IMS, IMF forecasts, but how does it, the picture that the IMF is painting compare to what we've heard elsewhere?
3: Look, I think we're heading into um, you know a grey area uh, in the global economy. Now, can we handle the grey area? What do I mean by that? I mean we've gone from like great bullishness and optimism for much of 2021 and into the start of 2022 to great pessimism because inflation was way above forecast. Central banks were embarking on a campaign of interest rate hikes that was much more aggressive than had been anticipated. And naturally, uh, the economy began to wilt, not buckle, but wilt uh, under the weight of that. Then we had China's reopening uh, at the end of last year, which came very, very quickly. It's like, okay, one of the big drags has been taken away. The other big drag has been rapid monetary tightening. That's now coming to, uh, at the very least, um, a sort of a fork in the road. Uh, If not, we're talking about an end of hikes. So, you know, we're in a grey area here. Um, And it might be like the period uh, around 1995. Federal Reserve and other central banks uh, raised borrowing costs very aggressively in 1994 things slowed down considerably, they eased off, and we then had a year or two of fine-tuning. You know, things could have gone either way. And then the end result was the 90s boom that's now gone down in history. So, Hmm. you know, we may be in a grey area, a period of fine-tuning. Can we handle it? I'm going to have to strap myself in. I think we all might.
1: Daniel Moss, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, thank you very much for that analysis. Up next, Sunak appoints a former Morgan Stanley exec as his business advisor. Big brand millionaires call for a British wealth tax, and an Intel leak suggests UK special forces are in Ukraine.
0: The Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors Inc. The countdown has begun.
1: The Paper Review on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. The news you need to know from today's papers. Blueberg's Leanne Gerens is with us in studio for details of some of those stories in the papers today. Let's start with the Financial Times. Rishi Sunak appoints former top Morgan Stanley executive as his business advisor. This is Frank Petitianne.
2: Thank you so much. Um, yes, and I'm here. And you know what? He has been bought in as the government hopes to deliver Stephen on economic pledges and bring down inflation by the end of this year. And Petty spent almost 30 years at the US investment bank, Morgan Stanley. So this means he comes with so much experience and a massive network of connections, which the government are hoping to draw on. He's been hired to boost business investment, drive innovation and productivity here in the UK, and also help deliver the Prime Minister's promise to grow the economy.
1: Not an easy promise to deliver on, though.
2: Oh, it's not an easy promise to deliver on, Stephen. Let me tell you why. So um, yesterday's economic forecast published by the IMF highlighted the massive scale of the challenge he is going to face and the government. The fund predicted the UK economy would shrink by 0.3%, while other countries, including France and the US, are expected to expand. And the UK remains the only G7 economy not to have returned Mm. to its pre-pandemic coronavirus Size and business investment has stagnated, and of course, the Brexit vote.
1: So, lots of challenges for Mr. Petitgay as he takes up that role. Let's go to the Telegraph next, Leanne. The big brand millionaires calling for a British wealth tax.
2: Well, yes, this story is all about the growing number of the ultra-rich Stephen who believe they must pay more tax to tackle growing inequality in the country. The Patriotic Millionaires UK group are calling for MPs to impose a wealth tax on those who have over £10 million in net assets. So the group did publish a document ahead of the budget in which they outlined six wealth tax policies. Now, this was to raise revenue for what they call Britain's crumbling public services and also boost economic growth, something we've just been talking mm. about Rishi Sunak wanting to do. And they estimate that their flagship policy, a 1% to 2% wealth tax on those with assets over £10 million would raise up to 22 billion pounds a year. However, the criticism is in Norway uh, wealth tax has already triggered an exodus of rich money makers and people could just go offshore.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, there's lots of debate over the effectiveness of wealth taxes as mm-hmm. well. We've seen the experience, you know, when France has tried to apply one as well. It's very tricky to do right, although there are economists out there that have uh, very done very detailed work on the effectiveness that is, of, of that as well. I'm thinking of the likes of, of Gabriel Zucman and all. Let's go, though, to a story in The Guardian next. To Leanne, up to 50 UK special forces present in Ukraine this year. This is according to a leak of US intelligence.
2: Yes, indeed. So leaked US military documents indicate that the UK has deployed as many as 50 special forces to Ukraine. And this is considerably higher than the number from the US and France, where basically they deployed 14 and 15 special forces. So they, we see the UK putting more special forces into Ukraine. The government has not disclosed since the beginning of the war that special forces have been active in the country. Now, it's completely unclear what activities the special forces may be engaged in or whether the numbers of personnel have been maintained at this level in the country as the Russian invasion does continue. I was just thinking this is not a massive amount given how widespread and large the offensive is, but it's still interesting how much reinforcement the UK is deploying to the country.
1: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business App and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa device. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 11.30. I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe.